Hey, it's Jesse. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's all one word. We would really appreciate your help to support NPR podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Feed your Tamagotchi. Jump into those Jinkos. Frost those tips. Because we're going back to 1999. For over 20 years, she's been a regular working actor. She starred in movies like Saved, The Princess Diaries, and I'm Not Here. On TV, she's appeared on Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs, and of course, This Is Us. That smash hit beloved drama just finished its six-year run on NBC. Mandy played Rebecca Pearson on the show, a role that earned her Screen Actors Guild Awards along with Emmy and Golden Globe nominations. And now, like I said, This Is Us has come to an end. When the production wrapped, Moore found herself at a bit of a crossroads in her career. So, she started writing music again and recording it. And she has a brand new record. It's called Real Life. This is the title track. It's too late to wait until it feels right. Now I gotta start the long good Mandy Moore, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Do you have to think about what the effect of your records is on people that love you from the one of the most popular shows on network television, <laughs> a completely different thing? I don't think about it, no. And I recognize that there are probably many, many of them that have no idea that I had a music career before, and that's how I started out. And that's perfectly okay with me. Did you ever think about it the other way around from people who knew you from being a pop star and seeing you as an actor? Yeah, that, that's been a different transition just because I started my career at 15 in music and then very sort of 
quickly transitioned into the acting side of things when I was like 16, 17, 18. And that became kind of like my real day job for a good amount of time. And then there have been lulls and ebbs and flows and whatnot. But I just, yeah, I fully expect that maybe people are a little bit more aware of of knew me from music and transitioning into acting has been a bit more of an ongoing thing for the last few years. Do you think that professional musician is your career now or is it 50-50 or mm. is music a thing you do because you love it and you're going to continue to try yeah. and be on network television programs? <laughs> I feel like music has always been a hobby. It's the thing that I haven't found the same degree of success with that I kind of have on the acting side. So I I love that because it means there's no expectation. I have total freedom to make music on my own terms. And although I started out in a very controlled environment as a pop star and making music with A&R folks and, you know, just the whole machinery of like the late 90s, early 2000s. But again, I think because I never really achieved the level of success that a lot of my contemporaries did, it kind of allowed the record label to like take their foot off the gas. They're like, go do whatever you want. So at 18, like, I remember I made this covers record and I covered like XTC and Joe Jackson and Joni Mitchell and all this music that I was like discovering and falling in love with. And they let me put out this record because they're like, yeah, yeah, our relationship is over. And that was kind of like the transition for me of starting to write my own music and be way more involved creatively. So, but it's still like I've never, ever found the same degree of success, especially like compared to, you know, something like a, a This Is Us in my life over the last six years. So I feel lucky that I get to feel creatively fulfilled on both ends. but. Music is less of my day job. It's definitely just my passion. What was uh, writing songs like for you for this record? I mean, like practically. You've always worked with collaborators. Does that mean yeah. that you're, you know, the two of you are sitting together going scooby dooby doo And that, like, what, what is <laughs> the actual much. functional? <laughs> I don't have a strong understanding of the music making process, yeah. I will admit. <laughs> I think it differs for everybody and it even differs like day to day for me. Like sometimes I will come in with a very strong idea lyrically of what I want to talk about or just, you know, the idea of like, I really love that one chord progression in this crowded house song. Like I'd love to try and find a song that makes me feel that way. I wrote this whole record with my husband, Taylor, and one of my best friends, Mike Viola, who also produced the record. He's produced my last three records. So yeah, I think together the three of us just like have always been on the same page and known they've really been great about following my lead and letting me sort of take the helm and figure out like what this record needed to be. I, I hadn't made music in about over a decade and I started working on a record that came out in March of 2020 and we were four days away from going on the road with it. And obviously the world shut down and and uh, had to sort of make different plans. And so I think that in real life, this album that just came out is a direct reflection and response of 
how I was feeling during that time. I think trying to get a grasp on what was happening in the world and the confusion and the chaos. Writing has always been a really cathartic outlet for me. And to be able to connect and do that with with Taylor, with my husband, and then bringing Mike into the fold once it felt kind of okay to do that after a couple of months. And then I found out I was pregnant, like, you know, very early on in the pandemic as well. So a lot of this record is also talking about impending parenthood and what this next chapter of my life was going to look like and looking back on my life and reflecting on my relationship with my parents. And it just, it really kind of colored everything. I'm not that surprised to hear that you put this record together while you were, you know, just realizing you were pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic, because it it feels like you're in a in a way kind of trying to explain who you are and how you got there a little bit. But when I say that, like, I mean, to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, not, yeah. not to the world. Not like this is it's not like uh, this is my fight song type situation. No. It's uh it's a, it's a little quieter, I think. Yeah, you trying to figure out how to how to feel right about being yourself. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Were you freaked out at the beginning of the pandemic? Were you freaked out when you found out that you were pregnant at the beginning of the pandemic? I was freaked out. I think, like probably the rest of the population, just what what is this world gonna be? What is our life gonna sort of constitute of? Like, it, yeah, there was just so many questions and no answers and just living in a world of fear. So yeah, I think that finding out <laughs> that we were going to become parents was a beautiful personal silver lining, but it was also like made all the more terrifying just because of the state of the world and how sort of completely protective you immediately felt anyway. And I went back to work when I was like five months pregnant and that was pretty scary as well understanding that there were going to be certain protocols in place. And I did end up feeling very safe at work. But still, there were like so many question marks. We were one of the first shows to go back into production. And so I kind of felt like we were guinea pigs in a way. We would shut down periodically because someone, you know, none of the actors ever tested positive. I don't know how for, you know, a year and a half. And thousands of of covid tests no one sort of on the in the main cast ever tested positive but we'd have crew members and people that worked in the office and whatnot and in the beginning it like kind of shut everything down for like a week at a time and then we'd slowly sort of get back up and running again and yeah carrying a child and being pregnant for the first time was a little daunting during that time especially but it did give me a a lot to write about (laughs) a lot to reflect on a lot to be grateful for so there's two lanes of inquiry that I want to open here. Yeah. The first of them is, so I had some interactions with the medical system towards the beginning of the pandemic. And it, one of the scariest and most difficult things about it was just how fraught it was to go to the doctor, yeah. which is a big part of being pregnant. Mm-hmm. So what was that like to know that you were kind of entering an unknown and a little bit scary world just to like go and get an ultrasound or whatever. Just to go and get an ultrasound. Yeah, it was strange. It was strange times. But, you know, you masked up and had your hand sanitizer. You sort of like weaponized yourself as best as you could going out into the world. And like I, I tried to keep myself in my little bubble. But yeah, I also knew like I have to enter into the world. Like this is a big part of of 
our existence, and this is important, and this is an important part of making sure that my health is okay and the health of my unborn child is okay. So you sort of like cast aside all those other fears and doubts and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. But it was a strange time, especially also you had to do most of that solo, whereas for the most part, you'd be, you know, hopefully sharing it with your partner. The, you know, also silver lining of the world being kind of closed was that I got to share this time with my husband when my husband's a touring musician and like 90% of his life is spent on the road. And I guarantee we never would have spent this kind of concentrated amount of time together during this very special time. So I was really grateful that we got to ride the waves of that of that time together. What was it like to share your, I'm sure you and your husband each had your own anxieties about parenthood to share them in a house that you basically never left. (laughs) And that we couldn't escape each other. Um, Well, we discovered over the pandemic that we very much like each other, which I was grateful for and really enjoyed spending two plus years (laughs) confined together. It was, yeah, I, I loved being able to share those there were, there were fears, but we had actually been trying to start a family for a while. So I think there was more relief in it finally coming to fruition and gratitude than there was. I mean, obviously, as things progress and you actually see this child growing in you physically, it's it becomes more real. And you, you're reading all the books and taking weird Zoom baby classes. And that's for sure. It elicits conversations about what kind of parents do we want to be? What kind of influence do we want to have on our kids? What do we want the future to look like? Where do we want to live? Like, what kind of schools? I mean, all of those things that, yeah, you don't really think about, I guess, until you're in that situation. It's more fun to just ignore that stuff and think about, you know, romanticized version, I guess. Even more still to get into with Mandy Moore after the break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mandy Moore, the singer-songwriter and star of This Is Us. Let's get back into our conversation. Did you have to make a plan with your husband on what to do about having a baby when he is a touring musician, you're a working actor and sometime touring musician, And there is a deadly pandemic (laughs) spreading through the land. Did we have a plan in place? Yeah. Like, how do you, how did you figure (laughs) out? Like, because normally it would be like, well, our parents come to stay with us for as long as possible. Or maybe if you're lucky, they live in the area. You're shaking your head no. Well, I mean, no. The only plan we had in place was he wasn't working because he wasn't touring and I was working. And I went back to work, in fact, like a month after Gus was born. So, Our plan was to have the support that we needed in order to ensure that, like, I could go back to work and I was nursing him. And so I needed to have someone there to kind of, like, help facilitate that. And Taylor was around to do that some of the time. And we had someone else that would step in and help when he couldn't do it. And it was um, it was great, actually. It ended up working out really well. I feel lucky that I have a job that I love that allowed me to bring my child to work, like, consistently without hesitation no one no one felt put out by it no one whenever I was like hey guys I need you know 10 minutes to go nurse my baby or I need to take a break to go visit him or 
I need to eat something like no one questioned that. And I felt very, um, yeah, very supported and very understood in that, that whole situation. It was really lovely. I'm sorry to ask you such a dumb question, but did you ever find yourself at work feeding your child in old lady makeup? I did a lot. I have lots <laughs> of pictures of it too, just for like therapy purposes later for Gus. Just because you know, there's there's parts of this of of what you were filming where you were what like 85. Yeah, right? I wasn't On quite screen. ever that age. Uh, okay. Nursing him, but okay. I was in my early seventies, and okay. <laughs> I would call myself Grandma Mom when I would <laughs> to nurse him. Then, yeah, lots of photographic evidence of that happening. I think all mothers can relate to that moment when their when their baby looks up at them and <laughs> wonders why they're, why they're 80 forty years, years old. old. <laughs> yeah, what happened? I think he smelled me and recognized my voice, so he was never confused. But yeah, I mean, from an early age, he saw me in like different wigs. And I guess he's, I don't know. Again, you got to give him something to go to therapy for later in life, right? It must have been odd to be going through that beginning in your life as you were doing the work that was the end of this show that, you know, had been, had redefined your career, yeah. defined your career to yeah. some extent. Mm-hmm. And, like, to be there, like, look around with these people that you've been working with for seven years or whatever, say, this is the last I'm going to see them. Also, I guess I'm a parent now for the rest of my life. Yeah. Strange juxtaposition of, like, starting this very, the most important chapter of my life as, you know, something that is very seminal and important to me is ending. But also something really beautiful in that as well. And I've tried to embrace that. And I'm excited because I don't really, beyond like this record and going on the road, I don't know what comes next beyond being a mom. And I'm excited about that. I'm really, I'm. it's lovely to have job security, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to give myself some time to process what I just experienced and lived through for six seasons. And also like, I I went back to work with him when he was a month old. Like, I'd love to just have a moment to be mom and then figure out what comes after. And also go on tour. I'll go on tour and bring him on tour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your husband is going with you, right? He is. Yeah, my... Is, is he also going to be performing on this tour? I mean, he'll be in the band, yeah. My husband and my brother-in-law. So it really will be like a Partridge family situation. We'll bring Gus with us and... Yeah, just bring him around the country. And it might be the worst idea of all time. But I'm also like, you know what? This is going to be like some weird family summer vacation. And it'll be fun to tell him one day, like, you went to 25 cities around the country when you were 15 months old. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your early career, your your teenage years and before. Sure. I know that you started singing and acting, you know, the way that children start singing and acting when you were a child, when you were 10, 12 years old. Yeah. Did you aspire at some point to do it professionally immediately? Like, did you ever say to your mom, like, bring me on auditions or oh, yeah. um, get me a record deal <laughs> or whatever? Stat. No, I was very self-motivated. I don't know where it came from. No one in my family is artistic. No one's remotely creative. My dad's an airline pilot or was an airline pilot. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, I. but I, I remember 
we were fortunate enough to go to a really great school in Orlando where I grew up. And it was a private school and every kid had to attend drama and music class. So I think that was my introduction. I don't know if I would have been introduced to music or theater in any regard if it weren't for school. And every kid had to participate in the fifth and sixth grade plays, which they put on at like the big touring theater in in town where all the touring Broadway shows came through. And I was six and I saw the sixth grade production of Oklahoma and the girl who played Lori, I just remember her singing, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. And she was incredible. And I remember like sitting up in my seat and looking all around me at like the audience in awe at how talented this girl was. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to make people feel like that. That It's something like, like electricity pulsed through my body. And I remember I would like walk around the house mimicking the song and asking my parents if I sounded like her and I'd sing The Little Mermaid and that quickly transitioned into just like finding theater like Broadway musicals and like cast recordings and listening to those and I remember my mom went to like a Bette Midler show when I was a kid and she got one of those like souvenir like books from the tour and I would just thumb through it and and with Bette Midler and all of her like crazy costumes but I remember thinking I want to do that and I remember you know from like 10 or 11 or 12 seeing Beaches which is far too young to see that movie but being so moved by I mean, it, I just some would argue Bette that Bette Midler not necessarily for children in not, general no 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 but for wonderful me, issue Bette Midler go on bullseye you're always welcome oh here oh my gosh I tried to book Bette Midler before you're always welcome here come on but Bette. maybe not the main thing being that for a 10 year old no I yeah I was not her target demo but somehow I found her and found her music and she was just on a pedestal to me and I wanted to have a career like that I wanted to do movies and Broadway and TV play bath and houses play bathhouses <laughs> in New York City make like, Barry Manilow yeah. <laughs> exactly and uh, that evolved into finding the Orlando Sentinel used to have an audition hotline on Fridays where you could call and find out like what the local upcoming auditions for all age groups were. And I would write down whatever was in town, all across town and far little reaching suburbs around around Orlando of what was casting for people my age. And then my parents were very kind to schlep me across town and audition for like, you know, a, a local production of Gypsy or something. And I just, that one thing led to another. I sing the national anthem at sports events, anything I could do to just sing and be out there and performing. I wanted that opportunity. I mean, I imagine that at some point when you were trying to sing the national anthem at sporting events, you must have figured out like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at singing. I don't know if I ever felt that way. I felt good singing, but I I never remember a time where I was like, oh, I'm I'm good. Like, I just, I loved it. I loved the feeling that overcame me. And that was the driving factor. I was like, oh, I can't get enough of this. I can't get enough of like being on stage and feeling that like magic. I don't know. This question contains no judgment. How much of it was the act of singing, like the way that you feel when you're singing in the kitchen while you're doing the dishes? How much of it was the act of like entertaining an audience, knowing that you're like touching them and changing them and they love you? Entertaining an audience for sure. Just miles of difference. I mean, I still love being at home and like puttering around the house singing, but there is something different about being on stage and getting to do it for an audience and like 
again, something that sort of gets turned on in you. And the reciprocal thing of you give them energy, they give energy back to you. It's that that dynamic and that rush of adrenaline is something that can't really be reciprocated in any other place. I feel like you are having a sense memory right now. <laughs> totally. I am. I'm like taking, you're taking me way back. Your gestures have gotten much Sorry. stronger since we. <laughs> Sorry. You're, it's great. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I get excited. You're yeah. selling the national anthem yeah. right now. Oh my now. gosh. Here I am at the Orlando Magic. Game. I would have my pitch pipe and I had an American flag hair bow. Like I got real into it. And I, I remember I was at an Orlando Magic game once with my dad. We had season tickets. During the Shaq Penny Hardaway days, the, the glory days of the Orlando Magic. And we um, I watched a girl my age walk out and sing the national anthem and I had no idea. And that's when it dawned on me. I can do that. I want to do that. And so I sent in an audition tape. My mom dropped it off with fresh baked cookies. I think that really sealed the deal. And I got asked to do it. And then one thing led to another. I became the national anthem girl for like the Orlando arena, as it was called at that time. And I sang for the roller hockey team, the ice hockey team, the arena football team. Like I I kind of made my rounds there. That was the golden age of professional roller hockey. <laughs> the golden age. I think they were the Orlando Jackals, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I became like their their good luck charm during the uh, the playoffs one year. I think Orlando is a very interesting place to come up in the entertainment industry because, you know, there's places like, you know, Chicago has a world of people who are doing theater at the highest levels within Chicago, right? And they get the occasional job on a movie that's shooting in Chicago or whatever. Mostly they're performing with Steppenwolf or something. For sure. If you're in Los Angeles, you're like living within the television and to some extent film industry completely just because you're in Los Angeles. If in you're in New York, maybe you're doing a Broadway thing. Yeah. And Orlando is not Kansas City where it's like regional theater or nothing because Orlando is a place with lots of professional entertainment, mm-hmm. but it is a very particular kind of professional entertainment, right? It's like when you see a show on a cruise ship and you're like, these people are for real professional entertainers and they are in this lane doing this thing, mm-hmm. right? You're like, this person can really sing. They know how to work this job. Yeah. And also they're working on a cruise ship, the weirdest place you could ever work in the history of the world, right? Yep. And Orlando is full of jobs like that, yes, right? Truly. There's 75 theme parks. Yep. There's a thousand cruise ships. There's many tourist attractions of various kinds. Oh, yeah. And then I'm sure there's also just regular regional theater. Yeah. But <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's weird because I just feel like I was a normal kid who lived in the suburbs. I had no connection to like the Mickey Mouse Club or like any of the so-called industry that was there. I truly was just like a normal theater kid that could have been in any town across the country. I think people here in Orlando and the time period in which my career kind of started and they're like, oh, were you friends with all those people? I'm like, I had no awareness of any of that stuff. It wasn't until things sort of started for me that I kind of made that connection. Did you want to be a teen Bette Midler? I wanted to be on Broadway. Sing yeah. Castle on a Cloud or Sing, whatever. Exactly. Oh my gosh, that would have been the dream to be in Les Mis or some show in New York or something for sure. So how did you end up becoming a pop star? 
Besides being good at singing. I mean, you're an ex- well, exceptional that's debatable, singer. But, oh, you're kind. But I think um, I was. I think the marketplace has proven that you're good at singing. You've been a professional singer for 25 oh, years or whatever. Goodness. Yeah. Well, I was singing the national anthem at the ice hockey team. And as I was coming off the ice to walk to my dad, who was sitting in the penalty box, these two gentlemen like waved the two of us over. And my dad and I like walked over there and they're like, that was great. Thank you. And they told me that they worked in a recording studio. One was an engineer, one was a songwriter. And they had some music if I ever had any interest in recording in a studio, which, you know, is the shadiest way to open a conversation to a 13-year-old and her dad. It's a shady way to open, open a conversation to with an anybody. adult man. Yeah, Correct, like- correct. But I like just jumped at that prospect and my parents were like, well, you're going into high school, freshman year of high school. You have some money from some local commercials that you've done. If you want to spend your money, you know, four or five days in this recording studio, recording some original songs, like it's your money to spend. So go for it. And I did. And I was probably, oh my gosh, like day three, a guy who worked for FedEx, who had been in and out of the studio and knew all the goings on there, approached my parents and these two producer engineer guys and said, I have a friend who is the head, uh, like I have a friend of a friend of a friend who's the head of Urban A&R at Epic Records and I'm, I can send this like demo off to him. Nobody told me anything in case it never came to fruition and they did. They sent this demo. This this man through whatever chain of friends he had sent my demo off and this guy, David McPherson, who used to be the head of A&R at Jive Records, he signed the Backstreet Boys, had just moved over to Epic Records and he heard something he liked and he flew down to Orlando and I sang for him live. I sang a song from a Broadway show because that was <laughs> the nerd I was. Like in an office? In a recording studio. And I, I sang a song for him and we just like had a normal conversation. And at this point, it was like early fall and I had started high school and I remember I was way more concerned with this meeting getting over because it was a Friday night and I wanted to go to my homecoming football game. Like, I had no concept of this really being a reality that could happen to me and change my life. I was like, this is cool that this man flew down from New York and I get to sing for him. But I really, like, I just started making friends and I want to go to my homecoming football game. And that was the meeting that sort of changed everything. It changed my whole life. I had not spent a ton of time thinking about the process of becoming a teen pop star until I started preparing for this interview. But something that I thought about as I was doing this was I was like, one of the craziest parts about it to me is that, like, you're a freshman in high school, so you're like 14 or 15. 14, yeah. And you were at the top of the pop star hill, or at least the, you know, the second highest crest of the pop star hill, like... 18 months later or something. Yeah. So like the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around is the idea of how much changes so fast and like things move slowly when you're a teenager relatively. But like, I was like, I can't even believe like. It was less than 18 months. This was the fall of 1998. I started making my debut album in January of 1999 and 
by May, I had come out to L.A. and done my first music video and then immediately flew back across the country and started the InSync Summer Amphitheater Tour, where I was like the opening act, like on the stage that is outside the main stage. You know, it's the second stage you come through like the turnstile after they tear your ticket stub and there's like, you know, four people watching. What, I started out there. What was the show? Was it you and the mic? Did you have it dancers? It was me and four backup dancers and like a track and singing live, but, you know, doing some bad dance moves because I'm the worst dancer in the world. I saw but, Faith Evans do that one time really? with two backup dancers opening for Nas. And like Faith Evans can sing yeah. like for real. Oh, yeah, so yeah. Faith Evans is there just like blowing the house down with her singing. But also the stage is built for Usher and she just has these two dancers in a track. <laughs> like she had huge hit song. Like this is not before she was famous or anything. Yeah. And it was the, it is one of the oddest forms of performance. That, I can't, and that to, was such a moment in time when that was happening too, where you had the backup dancers. I saw Khalees do that opening for The Roots one time. Oh. Just Khalees and two dancers opening for The Roots. And you're like, what is this? <laughs> so strange. Yeah, that was my life too for a minute at least. And from NSYNC, it went to the Backstreet Boys and their their Millennium Tour. You know, I Want It That Way, that record. And we were in giant arenas and their show was in the round, I remember. So here I was like at 15, fearless, just walking up with my background dancers and like doing my 30-minute set you know, like five, six songs or whatever, and then bouncing. But I just had like not a fear in the world. I was like, oh, yeah, I even though my life had changed exponentially, I it wasn't like an expectation of like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. It was more of like, oh, cool. I have this opportunity. Like, I'm going to take it and I'm going to run with it and appreciate it. And this is so cool. And I went from watching these guys on MTV, like getting ready to go to school in the morning. And now I'm like my tour bus is parked next next to theirs. It was wild. I watched the video for your hit song, Candy. Um, oh, gosh. Which is, it's it's just amazing. Like there's this part, first of all, everyone is wearing those kind of like slightly flared cargo pants, oh, like yeah. slim cargo pants yep. mm -hmm. that all, I mean, we're very similar ages. So I remember these things very vividly myself from my own post-adolescence, but like, and, and everybody, you have a long shirt on, everybody else has a midriff shirt on yep. and you all climb into a lime green Volkswagen new beetle. Yep. And as I saw you driving this beetle in the video, I thought, I bet she doesn't have a driver's license. Oh, correct. They were towing the car. <laughs> yeah, I was 15. Didn't even have my learner's permit. But it was epic. I was so excited to even pretend and get behind the wheel of the car. Yeah, it was so much fun. How sanguine were you about the fact that being a teen pop star is not typically a lifelong job? Hmm. I... Yeah, I was aware of that. And I think that's why when I was lucky enough to get any sort of foot in the door, I was like, I want to try my hand at all of this. I want to act. I want to be on Broadway. I want to yeah, I want to do movies and TV and anything anyone will let me try. <laughs> and so I knew that like music wasn't going to be the only thing on the resume, hopefully. 
but I was just happy because I'm like, oh, it like, you know, it opened the door and other opportunities did present themselves because of it. We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depression Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like, he was a good character, my boyfriend here. My father was another one of those people. He was a really good character, but he he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mandy Moore. She starred on the acclaimed drama This Is Us, which just aired its final episode last month. She's also a singer-songwriter. She recorded a handful of hits as a teen pop singer in the early 2000s, and she's writing and recording still. Her newest album is called Real Life. Here's another track from it, Little Dreams. I remember when A Walk to Remember came out, and I don't think it'll shock anyone in the audience to know that I did not rush to the theater to see the film. Sure, sure. Um, not, not the. You aren't the, the target type of movie demo. That, yeah, twenty-one-year-old yeah, yeah. or whatever I was, <laughs> Jesse Thorne would run to see. But I remember very vividly. You know, it's not the kind of movie that is going to get ecstatic reviews. Sure. But I remember very vividly, I think I was watching Siskel and Ebert or something, and uh, or maybe I was just reading a review, and I remember hearing that you were great in it. Like, Aww. that this, sure, this is a, you know, this is the kind of movie that it is. It's, an, it's a nice version of that, but, you know, it's, it, it's not Werner Herzog or something. But, sure. But just, <laughs> just being like, oh, that's great. Way to go, Mandy Moore. Oh. Oh, thanks, Jesse. You know I mean? <laughs> but did you have the same attitude about starring in a movie that you did about going on stage before the Backstreet Boys? Like, did you know to be scared? I was definitely more scared of that, for sure. I don't know why, but yeah, I mean, it, well, I, I guess I do know why. It's you have, you know, the machine of like 200 people around you putting together a film, whereas you go on stage and all that responsibility is just on your shoulders. So if you forget the words or you mess up a dance move, like that's only on me and I can take responsibility for that. Mandy, I don't mean to be rude here, but normally the other way around. I know I, I'm, but I know I was fine to sort of go up there and feel like I have confidence in myself and like what I can bring to the table. And I know these songs and I'm just going to go up there and enjoy myself. And I feel my best when I'm on stage, but not really having had any real experience on a set. I didn't know how to hit a mark, especially during a walk to remember. Thank goodness. I worked with kind people who are like, this is how you basically do anything (laughs) on camera. I didn't know. I just really didn't know anything. And it was a real like tutorial on how to be an actor. 
So that scared me a lot more, but I loved it too. Well, I did the Princess Diaries first with Anne Hathaway and and that whole group and Julie Andrews and Gary Marshall directed it. I mean, it was amazing. And that kind of solidified, oh, I I want to do more of this because it was a summer camp experience. I was 16 and I was surrounded by like a bunch of people my age. And Gary well, Marshall had a rep for being like the nicest man in show was business. The loveliest. Oh, man. He's yeah. hanging out at his theater in Toluca Lake. Yeah. He was just what a what an incredibly gentle soul. And so, yeah, I'm so grateful. That was my entree into this wild world. I feel like I was ushered in with. Yeah, just he was the best. So that experience was great. And it, again, opened the door to to more opportunities and I walked to remember and saved and just like getting to do fun, random, crazy things from there. I was thinking that you you've had multiple new starts in your career because <laughs> you were still a pretty young woman when you had your first marriage, which by all accounts was kind of lousy and you were not making a lot of music. You were working some as an actor, but not working a ton as an actor. And, you know, This Is Us came when you were in your 30s, I guess, yeah. if I'm counting correctly. And and it's like a it's like a whole new set of stuff. So yeah. when you got out of your first marriage and you were had to be like figuring out what your career was going to be, what did you decide? Like, what did you decide for yourself? Or what did you, you know, tell your manager you wanted <laughs> or? I don't think it was any coincidence that like, yeah, work was just not an option and it wasn't, nothing was firing on any sort of cylinder while I was in a really unhealthy relationship. And it's wild to me, but again, no coincidence that months later the skies parted and the world opened up and this opportunity not fell in my lap. <laughs> I worked for it, but I, there were years and years of just like trying to find my footing and nothing sort of sticking and and that sort of overwhelming sense of rejection, which is very much the life of a creative person in any context. And an actor especially. And a, an actor especially. And I it's not like I hadn't been through that before, but I I just kept walking away with this feeling of like maybe the universe is trying to tell me this is like I've had my moment and I should be grateful and just figure out if I want to go back to Florida, if I want to go back to school, what what this next chapter is going to be, because I don't think this is working. And this is just crushing my soul with each like continued no and door closing. And I remember very distinctly like the kind of shifting teams and and sort of getting a whole new group of people around me. And with the idea of like, okay, so there's, you know, a pilot, a traditional pilot season out here in Los Angeles. It's like January to May. And it's where all the networks like, you know, figure out what shows they're going to make. And you make your first episode and then they figure out which ones they're going to pick up and put on their fall lineup or midseason lineup. And I had been auditioning for these shows and nothing was was working. And and these new folks in my corner were like, let's let's put that aside and let's look at the bigger picture of like. If you want to do television and films and stuff, let's look at like, you know, the new world of streaming services. Those kinds of shows are casting all year round. And I was like, great. I love this game plan. <laughs> and then two weeks later, I get this script sent to me for the untitled Dan Fogelman project on NBC. I'm like, 
what? This is exactly what we said we didn't want to do. I, I just don't know if I can, you know, face something not coming to fruition again. And then I read the script and thought, oh, this is why they sent it. It's excellent. And just thinking I'll do whatever it takes to be a part of this because I, I knew Dan Fogelman's work and I had actually worked with him on the animated film Tangled. So I knew him on the periphery because those films, it's like there's it's a Disney animated film. So there's like 500 people in the control room and one of them's the writer and there are two directors and you never, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different experience. So I knew him on the periphery and then I knew the directors, John and Glenn. I loved Crazy Stupid Love, a film they had directed. And so I was like, even if this doesn't happen and move forward, I feel like if I'm lucky enough to be a part of this, we'll, we'll make something we're really proud of. And then I ended up getting cast somehow. And I remember watching the pilot for the first time going, oh, yeah, I think this is going to get picked up. Like, this is fantastic. I mean, it was such a special first episode of television, and it only just grew from there. What would have happened had you moved back to Florida? I think I would have gone to school and studied journalism. I always loved journalism. Don't recommend. <laughs> I do not recommend. That was like my my backup plan. That was something that I had been tossing around. But even just like getting out of California was was high on my priority list. And where I would sort of go from there, I don't know. But I just, yeah, I needed a change of scenery, I thought. I could see like a Colin Hay type lifestyle for you Ooh. where, you know, you, uh, you're writing like cool singer-songwriter things. Got a residency somewhere cool and in, in you know, somewhere cool. And then just once in a while when being a cool singer-songwriter isn't paying the bills, you're just like, well, got to go perform my hit songs yep. for a couple months. <laughs> Those are great hit songs in both cases. Oh, but. my gosh. Oh, I love him. That's a cool plan. That's good to know. I'm going to keep that on the back burner. I, that's on offer. I want you to know. Thanks. Thanks. I love that idea. I think technically that the Princess Diaries in which you were uh, the mean popular girl yeah. is playing against type um but <laughs> i wonder if uh i wonder if six years of radiating warmth on an emotionally rich heartstring pulling network television program has led you to like be ready to like uh be you know make killer. a make a yeah i was gonna say make a show about being addicted to pills for showtime yeah stars is on the phone for they want sure to... i want to do something wildly different if possible yes no more network ensemble family dramas i feel like i've checked that box and it can't get any better so i gotta look elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> do you have a dream thing that you would kill to do? I would like to be Professor Harold Hill and the Music Man. Oh. I'm willing to do any major regional theater. I'm putting it out there on NPR right now. I can't afford to do like a community theater, but regional theater, I'll go, I'll go to Portland. I'll go Ooh. to I'll, I'll go to Boise. Um cool. if you got a if you got a 600 seat theater or something like that, I'm in. Professor Harold Hill, let's go. What's yours? Your guy. You're putting the bat signal out there. I don't really we're manifesting here. Let's do this. I mean, if we're talking musicals one day, I would love to be Mama Rhodes and Gypsy. I don't know if I could ever pull that off. But man, I mean, just you're, you, you've you got my brain thinking about Bette Midler and her sort of seminal roles. Yeah, that would be so much fun. But Or Adelaide and Guys and Dolls. That was always like my big, big, big fantasy. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm open. 
Thank you very much, Mandy, for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was very nice to get to talk to you. <laughs> it was nice to talk to you, too. Thanks for the thoughtful conversation. Mandy Moore. Her new album is called Real Life. It's out now. The song you're hearing behind me is from that record. It's called Four Moons. As we said before, she is also the star of the NBC drama This Is Us. You can stream all six seasons on Hulu. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Today at my house, I fixed my toilet after my five-year-old got angry, said she was going to pull the pipe out of the wall and did. Oh, boy. Uh, The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. It is a small pipe, but she really... Wow. We get booking help on the show from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music's by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in those places and follow us, and we will share our interviews with you there as well. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thanks.